welcome to BBC's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website at ballamvineyard.org or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Um, so, welcome to V61. As Steve said, I'm Josiah. This is my wife, Heather. Um, and we're going to be speaking today. So, as you know, we're in a series right now called Living Free. Um, and over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what it looks like to ha experience freedom, uh, specifically in the areas of sex, sexuality, and relationships, um, and looking at finding greater freedom in that. We really believe that as the church, we should be the ones to be shouting this message. Um, we should be the ones defining what this, what healthy sex, sexuality, and relationships look like. Because if we don't do that, then the culture around us is the one that's going to define that for this generation and generations to come. And as we said last week, we definitely don't claim to have all the answers. This is not a lecture about what's right and wrong when it comes to relationships. Um, we just want to give a healthy perspective on, on what that looks like, a biblical perspective, and invite you into a conversation about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality. So last week, we had the honor of talking about sex and intimacy and sexuality and taking a deeper look into Song of Songs, um, which is this incredible book that's right in the middle of the Bible. It's this beautiful, poetic love story of this couple where they start dating, they get engaged, they get married. Spoiler alert, there's a sex scene right in the middle of the Bible. It's this beautiful story of how they grow in love together, they get married, they grow deeper in love, they fight, they have makeup sex. It's just, it's a really incredible, beautiful picture of this relationship in the Bible. And uh, last week, just want to do a quick recap of what we talked about. So um, the three main points from yesterday, or not yesterday, excuse me, last week's talk, uh, we won't be able to recap it all, but if you are interested and want to hear more, it's on the podcast. So the first piece that we talked about was learning to know your name and what that looks like, learning your character and getting your identity before the Father. We looked at the importance of knowing that and letting him fill you with the strength and the character that it takes to be in a relationship for a lifetime. This couple in this story knows who they are because of the time that they've spent with the Lord and they've let him define their identity. They don't look to society or look to each other or culture to define who they are and to define their identity. They get that value and their worth from the Father and they're secure in who he says they are. And the second area we looked at was learning to love your sex drive. So our sex drive was given to us by God, and we were designed this way. We were sexual before we were sinful. The contrast between what culture and the church says about sex can often leave people in this sort of chasm of shame or unequipped to handle their sex drive and their sexuality. But God created us this way with a sex drive, gave it to us before marriage so that we could cultivate it and, and honor that during our marriage. Um, and our sex drives also teach us something about our hearts and our need and desire for intimacy, vulnerability, and connection. And then the last area we looked at was uh, the rhythm of trust and, and waiting to awaken love until the time is right. The importance of not wanting to and, and waiting to arouse love and desire fully until the right time. Making sure that we understand the speed and the timing of God and trust and covenant in our relationships. 
we understand that God doesn't call us to restraint or to wait, to frustrate us, but ultimately to fulfill us. God created us with a sex drive, and in the waiting, God is using our purity to grow the character and the identity to be in a relationship for a lifetime. So last week, we looked at this couple in their dating period, if that's what you want to call it, in, in biblical times. And we want to take a look a bit further in their story today um, at kind of the betrothal slash engagement time and then into their wedding day. So we'll can you continue on, excuse me, on chapter two of Song of Songs um, to look at the moment when this couple gets engaged. And Heather's going to read that for us. Ah, I hear my lover coming. He is leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. <laughs> Look, there he is behind the wall, looking through the window, peering into the room. My lover said to me, rise up, my darling, come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past, and the rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come, and the cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are, are forming young fruit, and the fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Next slide, please. The young man says, my dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. And the young women of Jerusalem say, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love, for the grapevines are blossoming. And the young woman says, my lover is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, return to me, my love, like a gazelle or a young stag on the rugged mountains. That's how Heather describes me often. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, here at the end of chapter two, we see that this man is bursting into poetic song. He's leaping and bounding over the mountains to this woman. There's, they've been in this relationship with each other. They're growing in love with each other. And he's so excited about the potential of this relationship and wanting to call this woman into a lifelong adventure and marriage with him. This whole scene obviously is really poetic in nature, um, but it actually is fairly similar to how this would have played out in Jewish culture. So we're going to do a bit of a history lesson and how that really ties in with the story of God through the Bible. So in Jewish culture, um, when a man wanted to marry a woman, he would go to his father, and, his, and he would have his father throw this really elaborate party. They would invite his family, her family, all of their friends, so everybody would be here at this party. The whole community is involved. And during the party, at some point in time, this man would have to muster up the courage to take a glass of wine, walk across the room in front of everyone in the middle of this banquet, and offer her a cup. This was the engagement moment. There was no like elaborate flash mob of tons of strangers coming out of nowhere and creating this perfect proposal moment. He didn't get to take her on a walk that was really romantic with tons of pictures and memories to a candlelit field and all the typical things that we see today. He had to get up in front of everyone, risk it all, offer her a cup and say, will you do this life with me? Will you rise up with me, my darling, and come away with me, my fair one? 
Once he offers her the cup, she takes it in her hands. The young woman was, who was just proposed to you now has the opportunity to answer yes or no. This was not a done deal. Just because there was this big party and he offers her the cup, it doesn't mean that everything is perfectly arranged and she has to say yes. She can still say no. She gets the opportunity to choose into this relationship. And if she wants to say no, she takes the cup and she slams it on the ground in front of everybody. <laughs> slams it on the ground, super savage. <laughs> There's no polite rejection or like a, eh, let me think about it. It's nope, boom, I do not want to marry you. <laughs> it's really intense. <laughs> she, if she doesn't want to marry him, she gets to make that choice and that decision in front of everybody. And that's what this moment is. There's so much risk involved for this man when he gets to call her out into lifelong marriage. He's risking it all, laying it out, saying, you are worth it. You are worth the risk of embarrassment, the risk of the love and the relationship that I get to have with you. Is, is worth it, the potential of being rejected. So he takes the risk and he just hopes that she says yes. If she says yes, then she takes the cup and she drinks from it. If you look at the Passover meal, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples, what does he do? He offers them a cup of wine. Continually through the scriptures, the Lord uses wedding language when he talks about his relationship with his people. In Exodus, when God's people are trapped in slavery and bondage with the Egyptians, he makes these four promises I'm going to read to you. I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And I will take you to me. Anyone who heard this from the Lord at this time would have known exactly what he was communicating to him. These were part of the vows that a Jewish groom would make to his bride on their wedding day. This was wedding language. He uses this language to communicate exactly what he's doing with his people. His people knew what was going on because of the covenant and the marriage that this, this language represented. God doesn't take marriage or covenant lightly. That's why he uses this language. And he wouldn't throw it around like that if he wasn't serious about his intentions with his people. In the same way, this man in the story is really clear about his intentions with this woman. After she says yes, he makes a speech in front of everyone that would have sounded something a bit like this. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and I will come back for you. And this is where she gets to respond with her part. Return to me, my love, like a young stag or gazelle on the rugged mountains. So in this time when this man got married to this woman, he would actually go back to his father's house to build a place for her, for them to live. You wouldn't live and go rent your own flat, or he didn't have his own place that he got to take them back to. He would have to go and prepare. The engagement was about a year long, usually, because this man would have to leave, go prepare a place for them, and build it onto his father's house where they would live together. Thank God it's not like that today. <laughs> really glad. So he tells this woman, yeah, well, just let it all out, laugh a bit, okay. <laughs> So he tells this woman, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm going to come back. He makes this covenant promise to her that he's going to come back. 
they were engaged at this point. This wasn't something that could easily be broken off and, uh, nope, I'm not going to do that. This was legally binding for the engagement. You would have to go through a legal process to break this off. So he makes her this covenant, covenant promise, I'm coming back for you. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. In John 14, he says, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. He uses wedding language to communicate this to his people. The entire engagement and betrothal period lasts about a year, like I said. Only when the groom's father sees that this man has done the work, only when he's built this place and prepared it, when it's ready for him to be married, when the father sees that this man has grown the character and the strength to be in a relationship, in a covenant marriage, will he give him his blessing. Only then, once the father says, you can go, can the young man go to get his bride. That's why in Acts, when Jesus is asked when he will, will return, he says, only the Father knows when I will return. Only the Father knows the time. He will decide. And this language used here by Jesus, again, is extremely specific and intentional. We see multiple times where God has woven marriage and covenant into the promises that he's made with his people. And it's because God doesn't take marriage lightly. Marriage and sex and covenant isn't something that's just flippantly throw, thrown around. God knows that it's too sacred and holy to make jokes about or to take lightly. So he uses this language to say, no, I am making a forever promise with you, something that will never break. If you are unfaithful to me, I will still be faithful to you. I will still be in relationship with you. He uses this language because marriage is also something that's a choice from both parties. God chooses into this, but his people still have to respond and say yes to that. It's a choice. God doesn't force anything on us. He doesn't force us into relationship or love with him. He gives us a choice. He's so good that he, God, he takes a risk. He risks love. And if, because we might say no, but he risks that love because he says, you are worth it. You are so worth it. He gave us the choice because he's that good. So in the risk and the crux of this story, we also see the community surrounding this couple and weighing in. The community speaks and says to them, catch all the foxes, those little foxes, before they ruin the vineyard of love. I feel like after moving to London, I have such a better context for this passage because <laughs> we don't really have foxes in California, at least not in urban areas. And let me tell you, they ruin things. They ruin my sleep every time during mating season. Goodness gracious. So back to this couple. This community is there to speak over the couple. And in this passage, these foxes are the compromises that are hidden deep in our hearts. These are the areas of our lives where we've not yet allowed or experienced the freedom of Jesus. The foxes keep the fruit of his spirit from growing within us. This community is calling out to this couple and telling them to catch all the foxes. The little things that might seem small at first, but if allowed to just run amok, can destroy their relationship and what God has for them. 
The community around them is warning them to watch out for the compromises that lie deep in their hearts and to do the work and to build a life with God to know their name. Because dating, marriage, sex, relationships, they only expose things. Going into a relationship, you're sharing the good and the bad with someone. So what I love about this passage is you see a community speaking into the lives of this couple. And how many of us, whether it's we're single, we're, we're dating, we're married, we're kind of living in the dark. We're living outside of community and outside of people. Steve, you, you touched on this earlier, but as we were preparing this message, I really just felt like there's this fox of isolation that we experience in this city, of living in the dark. This isolation that it ruins our ability to hear truth and encouragement, to live a life truly free. And we need community. We need people speaking into our lives, asking us the hard questions, and calling us into the truth that God has spoken over us. And on the other side of this, where we need to be out of isolation, we can't just assume that our friends are taken care of. When Heather and I were dating, it was really rare, actually, for friends to ask us hard questions about our relationship or about sex. I had a really good friend at the time, and we were both in a really similar place. We were both dating, um, and I kind of came to him, and I was like, hey, I want to be able to ask you hard questions, and I want you to ask me hard questions. I want us to be able to be vulnerable and honest with each other about our struggles in our relationship, what's going on, whether that be physically or emotionally, spiritually, whatever that is. But unfortunately, we didn't really ever have those conversations. Um, most of the time, if I ever asked, I had to... I had to be the one to prompt, and if I would ask, it'd be a general like, oh yeah, we're doing great. Really vague and kind of general, like, yeah, we're fine. We're good, whatever fine means in the church. I didn't want to press him and, and say like, well, but how are you actually doing? Because I assumed that he was doing okay, because that's what he said. Again, okay, fine, what does that mean in the church today? Oftentimes, we have this tendency to chalk up a dating relationship's um, status or how they're doing to whether or not they have or have had sex. Like, it's just, we say, oh, well, this is the definition of whether or not you're doing well. But what if this couple has, you know, made mistakes? Um, Purity is so much more than just whether or not you've had sex. So, so what, if, what if this couple's made mistakes? What if they've crossed boundaries that they didn't want to? And what about married couples? What about, how is their relationship? What are the things they are struggling with? And what about single people? What are, what are you struggling with personally outside of that, outside of a dating or marriage relationship? What are you struggling with? Are we willing to ask those questions and sit with people in vulnerability and honesty without any judgment or condemnation because we truly care about how they're doing in their heart? We really care about how their relationship is. Are we willing to, to help the people around us and call out the foxes or ask if there are foxes running around in their single dating or married life? It's easy to just assume from someone's position of leadership that they are taken care of or that they're doing okay or fine. But if you've been given permission in a friendship to ask how someone is doing and ask how a relationship is going and how they are doing with each other. Do it. We absolutely owe it to each other. And that, that goes beyond just if you're, if you're dating. That's single, married, 
dating, whatever it is, engaged, we owe it to each other to ask the hard questions. We're going to read the next bit of Song of Songs here. So the young women of Jerusalem say, Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it, fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it is Solomon's carriage, surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. They are all skilled swordsmen, experienced warriors. Each wears a sword on his thigh, ready to defend the king against an attack in the night. King Solomon's carriage is built of wood imported from Lebanon. Its posts are silver, its canopy gold, its cushions are purple. It was decorated with love by the young woman of Jerusalem. The next slide. And the young woman says, Come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. So we finally come to the wedding of this couple. And in this passage, we see a wedding procession being made to get the bride. So how this would work is once the groom's father deems that the young man is ready, that he blesses him, then the young man would get all of his friends and community together and they would go to the woman's house. He then goes and calls out to her from her home and the community, and they join in together in this massive parade. This passage talks about 60 warriors accompanying the groom, 60 soldiers that were protecting and covering the relationship of the couple in Song of Songs. Talk about a wedding party. I thought six groomsmen was kind of a lot, but 60 warriors. <laughs> this couple is not going into marriage lightly. They have a small army protecting and covering them on the way to their wedding vows. We just spoke about the importance of community. This is the kind of covering you have when you live a life in community. So the marriage and the wedding ceremony was a big deal. The whole community gathers around them and marches to celebrate this wedding that's about to take place. They all parade through the city, surrounded by friends and family, to the place where they'll get married under a hoopah. What's a hoopah? <laughs> that is what that word is up there. It's hoopah, not chupa, chupa, cuppa, hoopah. So a hoopah is an ancient Jewish marriage tradition. Historically, a bride and groom would stand under this covering. It's literally translated as a canopy or covering. Um, and they'd stand under that while they exchanged their wedding vows. So in order to better understand this tradition of the hoopah, we're going to hop back to Exodus. So remember that wedding language Josiah talked about with the four promises? That I will take you out, I will rescue you, I will redeem you, I will take you to me. Well, this was just the beginning of the journey God's people would go on with him to realize just how much he loved them, how committed he is to them. After leading his people out of slavery in Egypt, you kind of have this a marriage, basically, that's forming between God and his people. And God says to Moses in Exodus and says, Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. The use of the phrase special treasure, again, is wedding language here. The Hebrew people would have known right away that this is what a bridegroom would say to his bride. So in response to this question of will you keep this covenant, the Jewish people say, we do. So from here, the Lord appears to his people in a thick cloud. Exodus describes it as a cloud by day 
and a fire by night that was with them all the time. This cloud, this is the covering of God. It's what the Hebrew calls Shekinah, which means the dwelling or the settling of the divine presence of God. So marriage is this coming together of two people. It's a picture of God coming together with his people, leading them, covering them, like an exodus. And it's because of this story in Exodus that for thousands of years, a Jewish bride and groom would have taken a prayer shawl, attached it to four posts, and stood under that, the hoopah, to exchange their vows. So they're standing under this covering, this divine presence of God. Not only would a couple exchange their vows under the hoopah, but their wedding attendants, so the bridesmaids, the groomsmen, would actually hold it up over them as they celebrated for days on end. The hoopah was also placed over their bed, so as they consummated their marriage and made love for the first time, they had this divine presence, this covering, this blessing of the Lord over their life. Another aspect I love about the hoopah is that the prayer shawl that covered the top was said to be the father's prayer shawl of the bride. So in conjunction with the promises and the prayers of the entire community, you have that coupled with the presence of God hovering over them in their marriage as they begin this life together. So up there you can see a nice picture of a hoopah. This is Josiah and myself standing under a hoopah on our wedding day. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> it was about 40 degrees that day. <laughs> so we had learned about this tradition of the hoopah during our dating and engaged season, and it's something we really wanted to incorporate into our wedding day. And I can remember on the day of our wedding, my maid of honor, Danielle, she's standing there just to the left with the dark hair, I remember her standing on a ladder and just strategically placing each piece of lace over those four wooden poles that Josiah's dad had built and put together for us. And I can also remember years earlier sitting at ice cream with Danielle. And I was at this sort of crossroads in my life. I wasn't sure if I should move back to LA or if I should take a risk on this guy, Josiah. And she was there to ask me the hard questions. Is this a man I can be vulnerable with? Is he worth the risk? And then there she was, years later, literally creating the covering that Josiah and I would stand under as we said our wedding vows just hours later. I collected those different pieces of lace from each side of our family during our engagement. Some were from my grandparents, my mom, other were from Josiah's family. And they acted as this holy covering as we said our vows and committed to forever together. So this isn't to elevate the idea of marriage, but to elevate the covenant we share with our creator. Marriage, sex, singleness, dating, it should really all point us to one place. It should point us to Jesus. I know I invite the worship team up now if they would, they would come. So in looking at this and thinking about this story as we are digging into the scriptures this week, I was so moved by those four promises that God gave to his, to his people. And they occur in Exodus 6 when the Hebrews are still in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God says to Moses, you know, go to my people and say to them, I will take you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. 
I will take you to me. And you know how they respond? It says that the people of Israel said that they refused to listen anymore. They had become too discouraged by the brutality of their slavery. It really struck me. It said that God's people were too discouraged to even hear the promises he wanted to make to them. They were too disheartened to even hear that he wanted to deliver them from the very thing that was causing their oppression and discouragement. So over the last couple weeks, we've just really felt that we're supposed to be calling our community back under the hoopah, back under this covering, and back into those four promises of God. The four promises he makes to his people as he's setting them free. So we just want to invite you into this response today, this response of, of these four promises of God and this, I will bring you out, and this is, I will bring you out from your oppression, from your bondage, from your slavery, from your addiction. I will rescue you. And he says, I will redeem you. And then he says, I will take you to me. Yeah, like Heather said, we, we really just had this, this sweet sense that, that God really wants to call his people back under the hoopah, into his presence and back into community, under his covering. For some of you, that might look like just acknowledging that you've been really isolated in your single and your dating and your married life. For some of you, that might be bringing some of those foxes that maybe have grown a little too big or have run a little too far into community and into the light, asking for help and coming back under the covering of God, under the covering of community. If you, if you guys want to stand as we kind of go into a time of worship. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our BBC speakers.